0: Uh, Last talk on Ephesians, we're not going to get to chapter 6, but we're hitting the fireworks at the end of chapter Um, 5. This nasty word shows up right at the beginning that we're going to talk about tonight, this word submission. You might be familiar with Paul's letter to Ephesians. You might be familiar with the fact that this this passage about wives submitting to your husband shows up here, and we're going to talk about that. And before I read it, I want to make, I want to say two things. First of all, is this, RUF is a place for questions and is a place for process. Uh, You're allowed to struggle here, you're allowed to not agree here, Um, uh, I'm in process, Eddie and Jess are in process, we're still working out our life and our theology, Uh, and Questions and discussion are open. And I would love to have a discussion about this kind of stuff over coffee with you. If you, you know, if, if, if you hear what we talk about and you're like, I'm not comfortable with this, I don't know what to think about this, or maybe I like this but I don't know how to accept this. Whatever it is, you're allowed to disagree. Secondly, I will say this. Our approach in Scripture is actually to bring our biases to Scripture and to actually let Scripture confront us and not vice versa. ...to bring my ideas and to bring my culture and my biases... ...and hopefully your ideas and your culture and your biases... ...into the Bible and let the Bible scrutinize us. Because when you actually become aware... ...when we all begin to become aware of the fact that we have cultural biases... ...and the way we think is not necessarily normative... ...but actually very influenced by our culture... ...when you become aware of that in yourself... ...I think you're kind of on the front end of wisdom. I think that's where it kind of begins. And if you read the Bible... Pretty soon you'll actually realize the Bible doesn't let the feminist or the chauvinist rest very easy. Um, Any agenda that exalts one gender over the other is not going to be comfortable in the light of Scripture, if you're reading it honestly. And if you take much time at all, what you'll find is it never the Bible never comfortably endorses conservative personalities and cultures, and it never comfortably endorses liberal personalities and cultures. And so in a liberal culture like ours the Bible comes along and it's actually viewed as very conservative because of what it, because what it says is there's is an order to life. But actually in conservative cultures, unlike ours, for instance in places like the Middle East, it's actually viewed as intensely liberal because the Bible says, mercy and love sit at the heart of the universe. So in conservative cultures, it's teaching on gender and marriage is actually viewed as very liberal. And in liberal cultures, it's teaching on marriage and gender is considered conservative. And when you see the Bible doesn't just confront our way of thinking on the left side of things but it actually also confronts our way of thinking on the right side of things I think you might be starting to discern that the Bible maybe transcends culture you can't peg it on one side or the other and maybe that means it has something good to say to everybody from every kind of culture and maybe it has the wisdom that actually saves liberals from liberalism and saves conservatives from conservatism and so our approach will be to actually bring our biases and let Scripture scrutinize us. So with that in mind, we'll read some of the more controversial verses in the New Testament. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Nobody's walked out yet. <laughs> For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and Your servant, Paul, and I pray that as we consider this passage on marriage and as it says things that maybe upset us um, or challenge us, dear Lord, I pray for Your wisdom and for Your Holy Spirit and that You would work in our hearts and we would find that there's something sweet here and maybe we would, that we would find that there's hope here. So be with us, dear God. In Your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know much about art, unless you consider TV art, which you should, but, and uh, I have had the chance, probably like many of you, to go to the Louvre in Paris, France, I did it several years ago, over a decade ago now, and um, when you go there, they're one, of the, one of the artistic movements that's prominently featured in the Louvre is French Impressionism. Again, I don't know anything about art, I'm going to do my best to explain this, when you stand close to a French Impressionist ma- a painting like Monet, if you've heard that name, uh, you can't make out what the picture is about. They're not about like straight lines and photorealism or precision or anything like that. They're about impressions. So when you stand really close to a Monet, you just see these big blotchy brush strokes. And actually very close to Monet, it's very ugly and it doesn't make sense. It's even objectionable in some ways. But when you back up, and you stand back from one of his canvases, the whole picture comes into focus and it's beautiful and it's powerful. And you see this French countryside or you see his water lilies. I say that to say this is how you've got to approach this passage. Before you you stand too close at one verse or even two verses or three verses and and you see these big broad brush strokes that you think are unfair and they're not cool and they're objectionable, you've got to step back. Before you object and see it in the broader context and see in the way in which Paul is using it. And I think what will happen is if you step back and not object to these big brush strokes you're not sure about yet, you'll see that those brush strokes fit into a beautiful picture. But you got to step back and you've got to see what God's doing, that it's something larger and more beautiful than maybe those kind of brush strokes seem to be up close. And verse 32 is the key that we'll hang on. That Paul's talking about marriage, talking about husbands, he's talking about wives, and he says, This mystery is profound. But what I'm talking to you about is Christ in the church. He's telling us something about marriage and its purpose in this text. And if marriage is the end all, be all of existence, if marriage is, if it's the one big thing, it's the thing on which all our hope and happiness depends, then this passage is offensive to men. And women. Because it cannot bear the weight of that. And what Paul is challenging us to do is he's challenging us to see marriage in its context. To step back and see what he's saying and how those strokes actually create a beautiful mural. That marriage is not this conclu- the conclusive relationship in your life, but actually what marriage is is a teaching tool. It's this delightful relationship that has structure and beauty to it, But its primary purpose is to point to something bigger than itself. A marriage is not primarily for convenience. It's not even primarily for connection. It's not primarily to chase away loneliness. It has those elements. Its primary purpose is to point beyond itself. And Christian or not, here's how you objectively know... That marriage is not the end-all, be-all of happiness. doesn't matter what you believe. Everyone has to agree to this. The reason you know marriage is not the end-all, be-all of happiness, that there has to be something beyond marriage, is because, this is just true, I've said this in here before, every marriage in this room will end badly. It will end in divorce or death. Nobody's marriage will end otherwise. Marriage can't be the end. It's not the end-all, be-all, the conclusive relationship. It's not the source of happiness in the world. It points us to something beyond itself. God's purpose is to teach us about marriage in order to point us to a greater love. So here's what I think our responsibility to Paul is, as we encounter words that maybe at first glance turn us off. We have to step back. We have to watch this whole picture unfold. And see that if in his picture of a man and a woman intertwining their lives into marriage, that there's actually a picture of the gospel, and it's actually in the gospel and in Christ's love for His church. That's where deep and lasting meaning is found. So, qualifiers first, right? We've got to do some qualifiers to talk about the submission thing and to kind of dismiss some faulty notions. The first thing I'll say is this. These are real brief. This text has been misused at times. People have misread it and misinterpreted it and used it to subjugate women. And that's evil and inappropriate and that is sin. It's absolutely happened that people have have called one gender the lesser or the weaker gender and cited this verse and in so doing they have not understood Paul and they've sinned against God's design. Second qualifier, Paul in the gospel actually overtly turn upside down the chauvinist tendencies of their culture at this time. In Galatians 3, Paul goes on this rant and he says, Don't you get it that before God, distinctions like Jew and Gentile, distinctions like slave and free, distinctions like man and woman are of no advantage. Like, everybody has dignity and value. Because at this point in time in culture, right, masculinity was praised, and even women denigrated women. They thought we are a lesser role, we are a lesser gender, we are in subjugation. Okay, Paul and Jesus actually are, I'm not saying this to make a point or to be outlandish, they actually are the liberal feminists of the first century. And to not get that when you read the First Testament is to be tremendously biased and a poor historian and and exegete. They are blowing people's minds with the things they say about women and saying how men and women are equal in dignity and in value. Nobody else was saying that. They are the feminist champions of the first century, if you understand how to read. Third qualifier. This passage has nothing to do with domestic tasks. Okay? That's actually anachronistic. I I feel like I'm picking on bad historians tonight, but I kind of am. That's anachronistic. That's taking something in recent history and reading it back into ancient history. This idea that women do things at home and men do things outside the home didn't occur until the Industrial Revolution. Because until the Industrial Revolution, guess what? Everybody was in the home. So it's illegitimate and anachronistic. That means taking modern history and reading stuff back into it to say women do stuff at home and men stuff, do stuff outside of home. This in no way, shape, or form speaks to domestic tasks. And if you read Proverbs 31, you actually find the picture of the ideal woman. And guess what one of the things that the, the writer of Proverbs says the ideal woman is? Extremely capable out in the world in business and in commerce. So this has nothing to do with the laundry or the dishes or anything like that. (laughs) Alright, we're almost through the qualifiers. Next thing, submit does not mean obey. The reason we know is because in chapter 6, verse 1, the word obey shows up and it's applied to children. The word submit does not mean obey. Women are not to be treated like children. Again, I'm repeating myself, but this... This text is actually dignifying women in a way that shocked the conservative sensibilities of the first century. One more, two more qualifiers, real short. Submission is not a dirty word. It's used elsewhere in the Scripture to describe intra trinitarian relationship. That's between the three persons of the Trinity. Jesus submits to the Father, even though Scripture clearly affirms that Jesus and the Father are the same in substance and glory and power. In Luke 2, Jesus is actually the same word is used to describe Jesus submitting to His parents. That is, the Son of God submitting to His earthly parents. He actually is higher in value and dignity to His earthly parents, but still submits to them. Last qualifier. This is an important one. This command is given to women and not to men. The command is not, husbands, make your wives submit. This is specifically given to women. Men are not told you need to be a leader. Focus on leadership, assert your leadership, make your wife submit. None of that shows up here. It is not a task given to the husband to enforce on his wife. Girls, it is given to you for your relationship with your husband alone. It is not for you to to have this type of relationship with all sorts of men. This is something that happens within marriage. Now, that's a bunch of qualifiers. I'm done. But our culture is charged over the issue of gender. Uh, In many ways, our culture today is actually a lot like the first century culture that Paul is confronting. Because a lot of what the instinct in today's culture is to erase gender, to say it doesn't exist, that it's a, a social construct. And that was the impulse in the first century, is actually to create an idealized, genderless society where masculinity was essentially the form of gender to be sought after. This is, if you read the Gospel of Thomas, which is not in Scripture for good reason, it, the reason we know it's not of Scripture is because it doesn't square with all the dignifying comments about women in the New Testament because the Gospel of Thomas says, women want to be men. It's actually, culture, it's actually reflecting culture at that time. Today, we're trying to erase gender again in a lot of ways, we're trying to erase gender, not to create a gender-neutral society, but my guess is, and I think if we read and look around and are honest with ourselves, we're erasing gender, but our new generalist or androgynous society is tending towards masculinity. Again, there's actually this tacit kind of denial or repression of femininity in culture today. I want to contend that actually the Bible is truly feminist. Uh, ...in the sense that it actually protects and it redeems both genders... ...and it actually shows how they come together in a manner intended... ...that neither gender is oppressed when they come together... ...but actually, and especially in marriage... ...when the genders come together, they point to a beauty beyond themselves. They point to Jesus' love for the church. And verse 32 is our key. Marriage is profound. It's a mystery. And Paul has been trying to desperately explain all throughout this letter... That Christ loves His bride, the church. And He's saying, do you see? Even marriage is imprinted with the story of God's love for the church. It's a teaching tool for us. So let's dive into the word submit. All the qualifiers out of the way. My conscience is clean. I feel like if somebody gets angry at me, I can kind of feel okay about it now. Maybe that was just for me, but I hope it was helpful for you. Um, What does submission mean? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, right? Those are the big blotchy brush strokes that are heinous up front. We've got to start backing up. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which means as it's your obligation to God to submit to your husband. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The wives' submission to her husband is actually informed, right, by verses 23 and 24, the church's submission to Christ. So what does that look like? Here's my best shot at a short definition for submission. Coming under the verdict and care of His love. Submission is coming under the verdict and care of His love. Verse 33 is actually a concluding statement. And and we're seeing there that when Paul summarizes his paragraph, he says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, summarizes the husband's statement, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respects her husband. Submission is to respect and to receive his love. In in one sense, men begin to tap into their meaning and their sense of self by being strong for y'all ladies we begin to understand ourselves and that doesn't mean that you're not strong don't hear what I'm not saying doesn't mean that women are not strong I'm saying men begin to tap into their meaning when we're allowed to actually be strong for you I don't care what y'all think about my arms otherwise I'd cut my sleeves off but I don't have great arms but they're all right. I mean they're not cut but they're big-ish for my frame, I don't know I feel like I talk about my body too much up here. I I need a therapist. But um, I want Elizabeth and I want my daughters to think I have big, strong arms. I want them to. And when they think I have big, strong arms, I feel like I know who I am. Right? <laughs> this guy's pathetic. Yes, I am. I need Jesus. But I'm using a... Philo- a, 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 a fit. It doesn't mean every, every guy's got to work out and have big arms. Other guy's like, you know, it's okay. I'm using a physical illustration to illustrate whole life strength and competence. Girls, do you want to marry a guy whose strength and competence is not worthy of your respect? Whose strength and competence is not oriented towards making you feel loved and valued, but rather you misused in narcissism in ugly ways. Of course not. That's not the kind of guy you want. You want a man whom what? Verse 33, whom you respect. A man that you would want, that you, when you see him, you're like, I want to come under the verdict and care of his love. It is safe. And it is good. And actually, it's for the purpose of empowering you and making you stronger that when you're with Him, because He is strong, in your partnership together, not your subjugation, but in your partnership together, it makes y'all together stronger. Ladies, this is, this is for your husband alone. You're called to come under the care and verdict of his love. Here's the implication. Now, this is beautiful. Far from diminishing women... This kind of wife flourishes. What happens when the church submits to Christ? What's the purpose of the church coming under the care and the love of Christ? You know what happens? The church is restored. God's people are healed. They flourish. They're actually freed. They're strengthened. The verdict and care of Jesus' love actually strengthens his bride. She goes out into the world much more stronger than who she previously was. It does not weaken her. This doesn't make women weak. This makes women stronger. Outside of Jesus' love and provision and care, what do we do? We scratch and we fight and we claw our way towards meaning because we're so insecure. We are frantic. Submitting to our head Christ, what happens? Freedom. Freedom from the soul-destroying competitive, I don't know who I am, I've got, I, I, I don't know if I can be loved, I've got 60 to 80 years to prove I'm someone. We're, freedom from that race, which is killing us. In that context, if we reject Christ as our head, if we reject Christ as our lover, life is the soul-crushing race to try and find and feel acceptable. We flourish with Christ as our head. We flourish when we know that we're loved. When we submit ourselves to the verdict and the care of His love. This is what will diminish you and weaken you as women, girls. Right? Because I know the female mind. But I'm trying my best, right? Refusing to be cared for. I suggest you will be a weaker, more diminished woman if you refuse to be cared for. And if you're craving for, for this this oddly unhealthy romantic notion of this that you are strongly independent, which is not good for either gender, this is not a comment just about women, but if you're craving that I am going to be a strong, independent, set myself as, up as an individual who needs nothing and no one, for whom a husband for you is simply an accessory that you could do with or without, refusing to, to receive love, refusing to let someone say to you, I see all of you and I love you, I love you and I see your scars and I see your flaws and I see your cellulite. Whether it's physical or metaphorical, I see all of it and I love you. There's rest and you're stronger under that verdict and care. If every day you believe my grades and my accomplishments and my strength and my independence and my body or my meaning and my security, you diminish as a person. Even as you maybe get A's on your exams. If every day you allow yourself to be known by Christ, by His church, and Lord willing, one day by your husband, so that in each of those contexts, as is appropriate, you are seen all the way through. Errors, failures, insecurities, angers, sin, baggage, flaws, and you hear, I see all of you. And I love you. Will you allow man to say that to you? Will you allow Christ to say that to you? God has given us marriage to teach us about himself. Paul, Jesus and the gospel is not demeaning and it's not enslaving. What is enslaving and what is endless is the impossible task of trying to justify yourself. What is sweet is letting yourself is letting the voice of Jesus give you his verdict and care of his love. That's ennobling. That's freedom. Submission, the way Paul and the way Jesus sees it doesn't enslave or diminish. It actually ennobles you and it flourishes and it frees you. In Genesis 3.16, when sinners in the world, it all went wrong. And in that passage, Genesis 3.16 is the first time we see the genders go to war and it all break. And we're told that, Eve is told that because sinners in the world, you will have a tendency to domineer and to dominate men. You will want to dominate your husband and we see this today this is this is something that hasn't stopped right every sitcom has this trope in it the lazy husband and the overbearing wife right where the husband has abdicated responsibility and the one's become controlling and speaking to you we all many of us most of us see this in the homes we grew up in our father abdicated emotional and social and connectional responsibility and the mom started to run everything and it wasn't good for any of us And it will be our temptation in our marriages as well. The father abdicating and the woman over-controlling. Do you see how quickly marriage is warped? How quickly family is warped when the husband is not worthy of respect and when the wife doesn't give respect. And I'll say this too, girls. There are lame guys out there. There are guys who have abused their calling and they have made the concept of submission a terrifying task because they're lazy and they're disloyal and they're dishonorable. Their love is conditional and they call you to expose your body and intimacy without the safety of covenant. And it's understandable that you look at guys and you wonder, will I be safe? I understand why that's a hard question. And I'll be honest with you, Elizabeth and I love you, and if you have specific guys in mind that you want to ask that question about, we'll walk through that question with you. We really will. But you've got to also re- resist the temptation to also dominate them that you can't find worthy of respect. That's the lady's task. We're going to move to the guy's task within marriage because they're called with an equally high calling. Verse 25, Paul goes over to the husbands. Husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a passage that doesn't need a lot of explanation. Love is not saying it. Love is not feeling it. Love is articulated quite clearly. In this passage, love is sacrifice. Guys, she needs to know and understand that you love her. Your words are a tease. They're not meaningless, but they're a tease if they're not matched with you giving up things that are important to you for her sake. This is, I've told this story. Maybe not in a while in here, but I'll tell it again. It's a great story about my little sister and the first time her now husband, but at the time boyfriend, told drop the L word, right? It's a calculated, terrifying move for uh, everybody. And Scott, you know, planned on it, thought about it before this date. They had been dating for a couple of months, and he decided he wanted to drop the L word. My little sister suffers from an abundance of confidence and... Um, that's just, she's, you know, the youngest of five, and they tend to be really confident and know who they are, and it's annoying because you're all insecure, and you're like, wow, why didn't they parents like you? But anyways, Scott tells Melissa at the end of a date, I love you. And little Melissa, if you know her, you meet her, you can picture this very easily. She folds her arms, and she goes, really? Really? <laughs> And what's awesome is Melissa's like this tall. She's this little petite cheerleader at Furman at the time. And Scott is 6'2", 280 pounds, uh, all-state offensive lineman in high school, star rugby player at Furman. And here's Scott like trembling in his feet and this little petite cheerleader is like, really? And Scott's backpedaling over his words. He's like, well, I think I do. I mean, I thought about this for a while and I want to tell you what I really... And Melissa goes, to her credit, and she's right. She goes, let me just tell you what I hear when you say those words. I hear, I want to be with you always until one of us dies. I want to have babies with you. I want us to plan retirement and vacations together with you. I want to get old with you. And I want us to be together until one of us dies. Now, is that what you meant when you said, I love you? And Scott's like, I really like you a lot. (laughs) But she was actually right in the sense she was saying, don't tell me you love me, show me by giving up important things for me. That's what she said to him. And she's right, and that's exactly what Paul is saying love is right here. Paul is saying, this is the way it's done. It's done, by the way, Christ did it for the church, by laying down your life for her, setting aside himself for the church, his position, his glory, even his life for his bride, Guys, your wife is to see you put aside important things for her. That's how she knows she's loved. Both of the genders are ridden with brokenness and insecurity. And men's insecurity is washed away with respect. Girls, when you show them respect, you restore him as a man. And women's insecurities are washed away when you are found so precious that a man gives up his most important things for you. Loving her as Christ loves the church. Seeing all the flaws and saying, I see them all and I'm yours in every way. And I'll give up what I have in order to be with you always. And this is what your love does. Guys, this is what it does. It actually makes your spouse more beautiful. It beautifies her. Verse 26... Loved her and gave himself up for her so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the picture of Jesus making the church beautiful. And he's saying, this is what it looks like. Your love actually beautifies her. She grows in beauty because of the way you love her. This actually means, guys, that your love has the power to alter her sense of self. You will either make your wife ugly or you will make her beautiful by the way you use your words. Your words and your posture toward her will either be angry and judgmental because she hasn't made you happy. They'll be indifferent. They'll be deceptive. They might be threatening. They might be subtle manipulation, subtly manipulating her towards some worldly ideal of physical beauty. All these different ways you can subtly use words to not build up a girl but to manipulate And threaten a girl. And you can warp her soul or heal her soul with those words. You can warp them, or your words will be full of covenantal promise and enjoyment. And when your words are full of covenantal promise and enjoyment of her, she will become more beautiful. When your words recount your always and forever covenant and recount her beauty to you, you know what happens? She becomes stronger. The reason, guys, the reason girls don't want to depend or find strength in men, and the reason they're building a contingency plan with regard to men, is because we have not been dependable or strong. Guys, your words will warp or beautify the souls of your wives and your daughters. And Paul calls you to use the words, the way Jesus uses his words for the church, to profess and demonstrate his unconditional covenant-binding love over and over and over again. And what happens to the Christian as he or she becomes more and more sure of Christ's love is you become more and more capable to live a life that honors Christ's love. The church begins to live a beautiful life as well. Close real briefly. And that's Paul's point all along. This is a passage about the church. Paul actually in verse 31 and 32, he goes back to the words from Genesis when God created man and he says, the, the, the words are almost scandalous. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He says, don't you see that the thing you were made for was union and you were made for connection. You were made to be known all the way through and to be loved. And God wants these kinds of marriages to be happening because they tell the story of His love for His bride. He wants us to be able to see in each other's marriages and in our own marriages the story of the gospel. That's the purpose of our marriages. And that's why He calls women to respect their husband and to find safety and strength. That's why He calls men to give up everything in order to love their wife. It's so that we can see the gospel. Verse 31 is it, You feel the sexual imagery in there, because it's in there. And the way that Bible envisions sexuality, this whole life, lifelong, intimate, naked, exposed, safe bond. The two shall become one flesh. And it's this whole life bond, and sex is the physical illustration of this whole life bond. And here's, I don't know if they've told you this, or something married people, I'm kind of going of let out one of our secrets that y'all don't know about. Here's the thing about that kind of sex. When they're, your whole life is bound together in perpetuity, in a covenant, not just I love you and we're together, bound together in covenant. Here's the thing about that kind of sex. It is absolutely amazing. It's awesome. Y'all should get some. <laughs> Experience in its wholeness, with all of your life bound to somebody, it's the best thing ever. And God is saying, I've actually given you that to foreshadow my love. You know what that is? It's a glimmer of His love. It gives us a hint of understanding His love. Why is the Bible over the top about marriage? Because it's intended to tell the story of God's love for His people. That's the purpose of marriage. Wouldn't you be frustrated if you told a parable of your love to the one you loved? Somebody you loved the most and you you wrote them a parable, you wrote them a story of your love. And they read that story and they decided to change the details. And they forgot about the author. And they fixated on the story itself and never saw it as coming from you didn't look beyond it and see it as a parable given to you by the one who loves you to teach you about his love. Well, now you understand why Paul speaks so strongly about marriage. He doesn't want you to miss the gospel. Let's pray.